Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about breast reconstruction after cancer with Dr. Paris Butler. Dr. Butler is an associate professor in the Division of Plastic Surgery at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Paris, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. The vast majority of my practice as a plastic and reconstructive surgery is in the breast reconstruction space. Uh, The other uh, majority of my practice really is in in body contouring. So uh, I work pretty much from the clavicles all the way down when it comes to um, restoration of form and function, as we like to say. So let's talk a little bit more about breast reconstruction, particularly after a cancer diagnosis. You know, for many women who are faced with a breast cancer diagnosis, that's always a question that they have, right, is about what especially if they're faced with the loss of a breast, um, what will that look like? What will that feel like? What, wh- how will that impact their sense of femininity, of sexuality, of body image? So talk a little bit about the options that women have for breast reconstruction after a mastectomy. It's a, it's a great question. Uh, it's, a, it's a broad one, and I'll probably back up a little bit. So, you know, the goal of, of breast reconstruction, as we say, is to kind of restore form and function as it pertains to the breast mound. Um, we, as plastic and reconstructive surgeons, or at least um, it, it, from my purview, um, I love what I do because we get to kind of um, bring some joy, hopefully, um, to a, a difficult conversation, uh, particularly as it pertains to a recent diagnosis of, of, of breast cancer. So we, we know in the U.S. about 250,000 new breast cancers are diagnosed every year. Um, that results in about 100,000 uh, mastectomies. So when the cancer is was of size that it can't be removed locally through what we call a lumpectomy, then removal of the entire breast is indicated. Or sometimes the patient says, you know what, I've made a cancer in this breast. I, I, I don't want the chance of a recurrence through a small excision, so why don't I have the entire breast removed? And, and a prophylactic mastectomy on the other side, prophylactic means that there's no cancer in that other breast, but they're removing it to prevent a cancer from ever occurring in the future, or at least that's the hope. Um, as a plastic and reconstructive surgeon that does a lot of breast reconstruction, our goal is to reconstruct a breast mound. Um, we do about in this country, almost 140,000 breast reconstruction procedures are performed per year. Um, that's a that's a, a big number. Um, we think that about 65% of the time in the country when a mastectomy is performed, a, a patient will opt for some kind of breast reconstruction procedure. And that does come, as you alluded to, in, in various forms. 75% of the time when we perform breast reconstruction in the U.S., um, it's an implant-based reconstruction where we use a uh, prosthetic implant, either saline or silicone, that we implant into the into the chest wall to reconstruct that breast mound. And then about 25 to 30% of the time, we do what we call autologous reconstruction, where Alto is self, so we use a different part of the body. We remove a, a part of the body, say from the abdomen, the thighs, the buttocks, um, and we use that tissue um, through microsurgical techniques to create a, a new breast mound. 
the goal, we say, is to create a breast mound to get patients to look quote unquote normal in clothes. Um, I think many of us are proud to say that we can get our patients to look normal in, in underwear and normal in a bathing suit. Um, However, as soon as, you know, when the bathing suit's removed or the underwear is removed, there's always going to be scars. There's no such thing as scarless surgery. And uh, I don't want to paint a grim picture, but I think it's, it's important to have that realistic expectation as well. And so let's dive a little bit deeper into, um, into these options. So what are the things that you consider or that patients could consider when they're thinking about, first of all, do I get reconstruction or not? Well, I think, you know, it it starts with that initial conversation with the breast surgeon or the surgical oncologist pertaining to what kind of cancer surgery they're going to need. Um, you know, breast reconstruction, in my opinion, and many others, is a full continuum of offerings. Uh, as an example, you know, I mentioned the fact that about 65% of the time a woman will opt for breast reconstruction. That means 35% of the time in the U.S. when a woman has a mastectomy, uh, they don't have formal breast reconstruction for one reason or another. They're either um, too sick or have too many other medical challenges that would preclude them from getting additional surgery, or they just say, you know what, I uh, don't want to go through any additional operations to reconstruct breast mounds. I'm fine with being closed, say, flat. So our continuum as plastic and reconstructive surgeons that work and live in this space spans from what I call aesthetic flat closures. You know, that's for the woman who says, listen, I don't want reconstructed breast mounds, but I don't want to be left behind with a lot of redundant skin that can get rashes and irritation. So can you help um, the breast surgeon in just closing things flat so I can either be fitted with an external prosthesis or so I can get tattoos or no tattoos, um, or just once again, to avoid that, that redundancy with excess uh, skin. Then you move to, you know, more formal things like implant-based reconstruction uh, to flap surgery, as we like to call it, or autologous surgery, to something that I'm actually fairly excited about of late, where um, a patient will have a lumpectomy and they've always, they have larger breasts and they've always wanted a breast reduction or a breast lift. And the silver lining of their cancer diagnosis is, is the fact that the breast surgeon can do the lumpectomy and then I can come in and do a formal breast reduction or oncoplastic reconstruction. And in this circumstance, actually make their breast maybe aesthetically more pleasing than they were prior to their diagnosis. So the, the continuum of breast reconstruction offerings that, that many of us have in our toolkit uh, continues to expand. And so, as you mentioned, you know, the discussion about whether or not to reconstruct often has to do with patients' comorbidities. It might have to do with their cancer, with whether or not radiation is expected after the mastectomy. Can you talk a little bit about kind of that interface between radiation and reconstruction and how that kind of plays into your decision to either reconstruct versus not, uh, reconstruct immediately versus in a delayed fashion, and or the type of reconstruction that you might choose? It's a very good uh, question, Dr. Chabar, one that could easily go for an hour um, or more in, in response. I, I will say radiation does complicate things. I tell my patients, because I'm very also proudly boarded in general surgery and speak a lot of the cancer language, although I'd never overstep my surgical oncology uh, colleagues, but I, I understand the magnitude of, of radiation therapy. And um, as a plastic and reconstructive surgeon, um, I, I, I understand the fact that 
Radiation is necessary many times for the oncologic or the cancer care, but it's tough on skin and soft tissue. That's just the reality of it. But in light of that, we, we still move forward. So it is my practice that um, as it pertains to radiation needs, we still will offer patients reconstructive options. Now, sometimes that will, depending upon when the radiation needs to be given, uh, impacts the kind of reconstruction that we are offering. So as an example, um, if a patient has never had radiation before, but is going to need radiation after surgery, in my opinion, they can still be offered either an implant-based reconstruction or an autologous reconstruction. And many times we still do that upfront. We, we still do that at the time of their initial operation. Um, there have been increase in, increase in amounts of of studies that have shown that a woman waking up with a, a breast mound has significantly improved psychological, social, emotional, and functional improvement rather than being closed flat, going through the process, and then trying to get a delayed reconstruction. That being said, we do have uh, a subset of patients that have to get to radiation very quickly after their mastectomy. And in those instances, we would almost always delay their reconstruction until they are have completed their uh, oncologic care, which would be both chemotherapy and radiation therapy. We can't do the reconstruction until they are a minimum a year, some would say a, a year and a half to two years out from their last radiation dose, once again, because that surrounding area is is so fibrous and, and sometimes still so, so uh, inflamed and recovering from the radiation. I hope I somewhat answered. It's a complex question. Yeah, it is a complex question. And I, I wanted our audience to kind of get a, a sense of the nuances that play into the decisions uh, that go into breast reconstruction. The next decision point, of course, is uh, do I do an implant-based reconstruction or do I do an autologous reconstruction? Can you talk us through, you know, kind of how you talk to patients about that in terms of the advantages and disadvantages of each and which might be best suited for which kind of patient? Yes, it's a, another very, very good question. I, I would say, um, and, and I'm kind of put a, putting a plug in for the American Board of Plastic Surgery, but I think it's really important and it can't be missed. Um, and I get these calls from loved ones uh, and, and friends of loved ones around the country about finding and identifying a plastic surgeon um, to carry out their reconstructive needs. And I, I, I would say ensuring that you, you have a board-certified plastic surgeon is really, really important. And once again, that um, cannot be overemphasized. You can just go to the American Board of Plastic Surgery website. You can type in the surgeon's name just to ensure that they've, been, uh, they've gone through the appropriate, rather rigorous accreditation process to become board-certified. Next, I would say when you meet with that plastic and reconstructive surgeon, making sure uh, he or she is willing to have the, f the conversation of the full array of reconstructive options. If you happen to go into an office and the, the plastic reconstructive surgeon is immediately pointing to implant-based reconstruction and doesn't talk about flap surgery or vice versa, just wants to talk about flap surgery and not implant-based reconstruction without giving the full, uh, the full menu, as I like to say, and then having a real shared decision-making experience, I think that that can be problematic and it's likely um, a time to get a second opinion. So when it comes to the different options, you know, I, I've kind of given the two buckets of implant-based reconstruction and flap surgery. I give the patients the good, the bad, and the indifferent on both. And there are pluses and minuses to both. So for implant-based reconstruction, it tends to be a 
uh, a little bit of an easier, faster uh, recovery for the patient. The that initial operation with implant-based reconstruction, more times than not, it's done in two stages where the breast surgeon or the surgical oncologist performs the mastectomy. And then we put in this device called a tissue expander. That tissue expander is a kind of a placeholder for a couple of weeks. And then as the patient starts to heal in the office, the patient returns every other week and we slowly start to fill that tissue expander to get the patient to the size that they desire and us surgeons are comfortable with. And then about once we've gotten them to size, about, I would say, that takes about two to three months, we go back for a second operation, which is actually a pretty quick operation, maybe a, an hour and a half, two hour operation where we take out that tissue expander and we put in the soft implant. It's, you know, a, a process. It takes two to three months to, to go through that. But once again, uh, we've gotten outstanding results and we have a lot of control in that setting. With flap surgery, uh, the upfront is rather significant. So instead of that initial three to four hour operation, um, this is more like a eight to 10 hour operation, if not longer, where we take tissue frequently from the abdomen, because that's where most Americans have the tissue to donate. And we use that abdominal tissue and we do microsurgery to connect the small little blood vessels in order to make that tissue live because the tissue couldn't live without blood supply. So that process of moving tissue from the abdomen or the buttocks of the gluteal region up to the breast, once again, eight to, to, to 10 hours and requires about three to four days in the hospital just for recovery and comes with the risk of, you know, we, we use the, the, the term or the, the phrase, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. So if we're taking tissue from the abdomen, we do worry about uh, the potential of developing a hernia or a bulge at the abdomen because we have to take a strip of not only uh, the abdominal skin and underlying subcutaneous tissue or fat, but we're also frequently taking a small amount of the of the muscle or the, the fascia that holds the muscle in place in the abdomen. So once again, it's longer operation. Uh, we do worry about the donor site um, when it comes to flap surgery. So speaking, you know, in length with the patient, um, looking at their body habitus, because if it's a, it's a fairly thin patient, they may not have enough tissue to to appropriately recreate breast mounds and implants is where we would kind of do our best to, um, once again, give them the options, but kind of steer them in that direction. And then, you know, patients who are more robust, we um, we don't have really large implants and that's where we kind of steer them a little bit more towards the, the flap option. So I'm doing my best to give you a, 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 a short answer, but there's no short answer when it comes to the extent of reconstructive options. Yeah, no, that was great. Um, so we're going to pick up the conversation right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about reconstruction after breast cancer with my guest, Dr. Paris Butler. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their liver cancer program brings together a dedicated group of specialists whose focus is determining the best personalized treatment plan for each patient. Learn more at smilocancerhospital.org. Genetic testing can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Genetic counseling is a process that includes collecting a detailed personal and family history, a risk assessment, and a discussion of genetic testing options. Only about 5-10% to 10 of all cancers are inherited and genetic testing is not recommended for everyone. Individuals who have a personal and or family history that includes cancer at unusually early ages 
multiple relatives on the same side of the family with the same cancer, more than one diagnosis of cancer in the same individual, rare cancers, or family history of a known altered cancer predisposing gene could be candidates for genetic testing. Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Paris Butler. We are discussing breast reconstruction options after cancer, and right before the break, Dr. Butler was telling us about how, you know, reconstruction might not be right for every patient. And even for those, the 65% of American women who after mastectomy choose to have reconstruction, there are options. So implant-based reconstruction versus autologous reconstruction. And Paris, I was hoping that in this half, we could delve a little bit more deeply into those options. So one thing, when it comes to implant-based reconstruction, some people have concerns about the safety of implants, whether they leak, whether they need to be changed out periodically, um, whether they need to be followed with an MRI, whether they can in fact cause cancers. Um, can you speak a little bit to those concerns and how you advise your patients with regards to that? Yes, absolutely. It's a it's a great question. So a, a lot of folks don't realize the fact that breast implants are are one of the most studied implantable medical devices ever known to human beings. Um, they've been studied more than pacemakers and hip prostheses and knee prostheses. That the, the same implants that we use for reconstruction, I think be, the reason for this is because the same implants we use for reconstruction are the ones that are used for cosmetic purposes. And anytime you put devices into celebrities to enhance uh, their look, uh, it comes with a fair amount of scrutiny and attention. So um, the interesting thing, you know, breast implants have been out for a really long time. Uh, there was a moratorium on them before even my my coming into practice to study them to make sure that they did not cause additional breast cancers or connective tissue disorders. And they identified the Institute of Medicine that they do not and the, and the FDA. Um, we are now on our fifth generation of silicone breast implants. The first generation once they ruptured, I say it's something like out of Ghostbusters, that kind of eco slime. This fifth fifth generation of breast implants are much more are, are much more sturdy and stable. They're actually, given the terminology, formed stable breast implants. So I kind of equate it when I'm speaking with a patient um, that these new implants are like a gummy bear, and they sometimes are even advertised as such. That if you cut a gummy bear in half, nothing leaks out. It kind of stays formed, and and that's what these new silicone implants are like. The saline implants uh, have a silicone shell, and they are filled with saline. The silicone implants have a silicone shell, and then they are filled with this form-stable silicone. When it comes to risks of the implants, uh, we've proven they do not cause connective tissue disorder. They do not cause breast cancer. But the textured implants, which I don't put in patients and many of my colleagues don't anymore, has been associated with a very rare type of lymphoma, uh, anaplastic large cell lymphoma. Uh, it occurred in about one in 2,700 women. For context, there are about 10 million women in the world that have uh, implants. Um, and once again, a very, 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 very small percentage of women uh, with those textured implants developed uh, that rare type of lymphoma. The other um, implants, the smooth round implants that the majority of us have 
uh, currently put in patients are safe. Um, I'd put them in a family member if it uh, necessitated for reconstructive purposes. So they're very good questions. I have an in-depth conversation with my patients about it, um, but that's a little bit of the history. What about for autologous reconstruction? So you mentioned that these can be very long operations, uh, eight to 10 hours, in fact, uh, that you're in the hospital for a few days. So some patients kind of wonder about the risks of the surgery itself. Um, what are the What's the complication rate like? Um, can you speak a little bit to that? Sure. So um, another very good option uh, is autologous surgery uh, or autologous what we call flap surgery, where we're taking tissue most frequently from the abdomen to reconstruct these breast mounds. Now, it is much more involved and I don't sugarcoat it. I have a thorough conversation with the patient about what it entails. Um, as I said before, in order for the flap to live, it has to have blood flow. And that blood flow comes from a when we take the flap, we take it with a blood vessel that goes into the, the, the top part of the thigh, and we actually connect that to blood vessels that are deep in the chest, right under the, the breastplate. And um, when we do that, what we call anastomosis, the connection of the small blood vessels with our high magnification glasses or with our microscope, sometimes the connection doesn't work and the blood vessels clot off and that's a failed flap. Now, thankfully, it doesn't happen that often, maybe one to 2% of the time in the country uh, that occurs. Uh, because we've we've been blessed to get so skilled with it, but it is something that we talk to patients about. The other is the donor site. Um, when you're taking tissue from another part of the body, there there's sometimes ramifications. There can be infections. There can be wound separation at the belly. Uh, we don't perform this operation on smokers because of that increased risk of wound separation in the abdomen, um, because of that increased rate of in, infection in, in smokers. Um, so, I would say it's a much more involved operation. You have to worry about implants um, for the duration of someone's life. Um, they have their own tissue. But once again, it does come with a much longer, a much more involved operation, a much longer recovery, a good four to six weeks, uh, and then um, the, the risk at the donor site. One thing I failed to mention about the implants, uh, implants are not uh, forever, um, as it pertains to the, the lifespan. Uh, there are three kind of main implant manufacturers. All of them say at the 10-year mark, uh, we should be proactive rather than reactive and have those implants replaced. So it's a rather short operation. Uh, do it basically on a weekly basis where we go through an existing incision on the breast. We take out the old implants and we put in new implants um, to swap them out before the likelihood of rupture, spontaneous rupture would happen, which is you know, it's about 1% per year for the first 10 years. After 10 years, it goes up to about 10 to 15%. And then after 15 years, it goes up to about 30, 40%. So I try to get my patients in that window, the 10 to 15 year mark to say, hey, um, when the time is right in your life, it's not an urgency, but we should have those implants replaced. Is that covered by insurance? It is. Um, and I'm glad you brought that up. So I go into the community a fair amount to kind of talk about um to help raise awareness regarding breast reconstruction options. And there are um, you know, two subsets of the community that don't tend to get breast reconstruction at the same rate as others. Those are our ladies of color and then our more seasoned ladies, I'd say our ladies over 50. And one of the, the things that, that many of these underserved communities tell me is that they're concerned that they can't afford breast reconstruction. And I very quickly inform them um, the fact that our country did a really great thing. Uh, our legislators in D.C., signed into law back in 1998. It's called the Women's Health and Cancer 
Rights Act of 1998, where it mandates that if a woman has insurance and she's diagnosed with a breast cancer that requires a mastectomy, that insurance company is also required to pay for their breast reconstruction for the duration of their life. And that would be either implant-based reconstruction or flap surgery or autologous reconstruction. The other very good thing is the fact that say a patient has cancer on one side and they're only getting cancer surgery on that one side, the Women's Health and Cancer Rights Act of 98 also mandates and allows for a plastic surgeon to do a balancing operation on that other side. So say they have a left-sided cancer, we do breast reconstruction on the left side, and then we do a breast lift or breast reduction or augmentation on the opposite side to help enhance symmetry. And so that pertains to uh, what you were talking about earlier in terms of oncoplastic surgery after lumpectomies. Is that right? That, that also pertains to that as well. Um, now, some insurance companies try to push back and say, well, the Women's Health and Cancer Rights Act was really only intended for mastectomy patients. But thankfully, we have been, um, with the help of our surgical oncology colleagues, speaking to insurance companies to say, listen, these patients who have lumpectomies, um, who are left with rather significant asymmetries and, and deficits, should be entitled to some reconstructive procedures as well. Now, the other question, you know, before the break, you were mentioning that the prime goal is really the reconstruction of the breast mound. Many women are concerned about the nipple. Can you talk a little bit about the options that women have for uh, either keeping their own nipple versus nipple reconstruction? Yeah, so uh, another very good question, and I don't, I would not want to overstep my breast uh, oncology or my breast surgery uh, uh, contemporaries, uh, nipple sparing mastectomy has been in existence for about 25 years. The initial mastectomies were were quite a morbid operation where we removed all of the breasts, inclusive of the skin and even in muscle. Um, we have now gone as far as being able to remove the entire breast, but leave all of the skin and including the nipple areola complex um, behind and have it a, a just as oncologically, so just a just as a uh, cancer-appropriate and safe operation. So they will have a conversation with their breast surgeon or their surgical colleague regarding whether or not they are a nipple-sparing candidate. Um, if it is, then there's no need for us to reconstruct a nipple areola complex. However, certain cancers um, don't allow for that. If the cancer is too close to the nipple areola, um, or if the cancer is too great in size, uh, or the patient is just too large-breasted or too totic or saggy, then the nipple areola complex um, must be removed as a part of the cancer surgery. If that happens, we reconstruct that breast mound, and then six months to a year after we're done with their breast reconstruction formally, we can go back and then we have special techniques to reconstruct a nipple areola complex using that native tissue. Something else that has really um, enhanced our field is the capacity um, for us to perform or to send to a artist 3D nipple areola tattooing. We have a, a nurse practitioner here at Yale uh, Plastic Surgery that uh, performs nipple areola tattooing after we've uh, recreated that breast mound. So um, lots of options on that front as well, but the conversation really should be with a breast surgeon as it pertains to whether the nipple can be spared or not as a component of their, their, their cancer surgery. And then the other question that I think a lot of people have is, 
what is their function and their sensation after a mastectomy? So does the nipple really work? Uh, do they lose sensation in the breast area? Are there new techniques that can address that? Can you speak a little bit about that? I think that's a, another good question. Um, once again, we a lot of this is about setting expectations. Um, in my experience, I've been in practice uh, over eight years after training for 12. And, and, and what I have seen is that most of my patients say, even when they are nipple sparing candidates, the, the sensation's not the same. Um, and we should prepare our patients for that. There are some techniques out there where we are doing nerve grafts, um, but a lot of it's in its infancy, um, and we're studying to see how effective those techniques are. Dr. Paris Butler is an associate professor in the Division of Plastic Surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.